We are, we are a church that takes a lot of pride in our children's ministry, and that is a new series that GC Kids is doing. So uh, second morning in a row, we get to watch that, but I, I promise that's all. Uh, that's all. Yeah, you, you're already excited, I can tell, for GC Kids. So uh, they do an awesome job back there with our kids. My kids are back there. Um, in fact, my wife's even back there teaching this morning. So a lot of cool stuff's going on back there. Check it out. Talk to a, a GC Kids volunteer. If you want to get involved, go see Chase. Uh, he would definitely love some, some help uh, teaching those little ones. Um, wow, what a time of worship. That was amazing. Can we give it up for the band and the sound techs? Yes. The series um, that we are going to be jumping into this morning is called Lost and Found, and it's um, a series that I've been thinking about for actually several months. I'm really excited about it. We get to this morning, this is, this is in a nutshell what we get to do. We get to examine Jesus' passion. We get to examine Jesus' heart this morning, and we get to see what excites him, what grieves him, and, and what gives him the motivation that he has to be who he is to us. That is amazing. We get to worship him, we get to do all those things, and now we get to look at his word, which I am so excited about. Lost and Found is about what Jesus thinks is worth looking for and what Jesus thinks is worth finding, and then the best part, what Jesus thinks is worth celebrating once it's found. And, and it's going to be, uh, we're going to take a look at the, the chapter, Luke 15 is where we're going to be in. We're going to look at the lost sheep the first week, we're going to look at lost coins the second week, and then the two following weeks, we're going to be in the prodigal son. Yes, I said two weeks. We're going to take two weeks to look at that amazing parable. Some people think this is one big parable, and that's cool if you think that, and we're not going to judge you too much. Some people think it's three separate parables. It's cool, whatever. Um, but we are going to look at them, and we're going to look at them in depth, which I'm really, really excited about. Um, let me ask you a question. Have you ever noticed uh, that the crowds that followed Jesus around, if you're in the Gospels at all, if you read anything about it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you see people that tend to gravitate towards Jesus. And it's really interesting because it's, I always forget about at least one or two of the types of people that follow Jesus around. You have the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the, the people that have all the knowledge of the Torah and of the, the ceremonial setting that, that Jesus found himself in. You have those people that seem to gravitate towards Jesus, which is interesting. He's a smart teacher. He's, a, he's this rabbi-type figure. Okay, of course, they're going to be following or, or at least paying attention to what he's doing. And then you have his disciples. Disciples follow him around. That's great. Then you have like these crowds that just seemed to congregate wherever he was. They didn't have Facebook or Twitter or Insta. They didn't have any of that stuff. But everybody seemed to know where Jesus was. But then you have another group of people, the group of people that are called, that are deemed the sinners of the day. They followed Jesus around. You had people that wanted to be healed. Jesus was a healer. That makes sense. You have people that were um, uh, down and out, brokenhearted. But you had people that were sinners by trade. You had people that were sinners by habit. And those people gravitated towards Jesus. And if you put all that together, I kind of scratch my head over that. Why would a sinner want to be around a Jewish rabbi that seemed to debate other Jewish rabbis a lot? What's the connection? Andy Stanley uh, said it this way. People that were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and he liked them back. And that's true throughout the Gospels. You see people that are nothing like Jesus. 
seemed to really like him. And sure enough, he liked them too. And that's true throughout all of the Gospels that, we, that we've seen. So Jesus draws this crowd, and there's always different groups of people in the crowd. And they all, have, they all want something different from Jesus. And you can see that by the questions or the, the dialogue that came from it. These people came out in droves. There was a point in Jesus' ministry where the, the crowd was going to anoint him king, it says, by force. And Jesus left to go be alone with his father, which is interesting. These people, this crowd, there are, there's a depth to the crowd that is worth thinking about. We have tax collectors. And if you don't know anything about tax collectors, tax collectors were like the worst of the worst. They were the, the public enemy. They were the, uh, the deserters of the, the Jewish faith. They were the ones that sold their birthright to the Roman government and would charge the people taxes. And that's not so great, but it gets worse. So they would use the Roman government to exert, you know, uh, take a tax from the people, and then they would put their commission on top of it. And some areas, the Roman government gave the tax collectors free reign on their commission. So you had Roman soldiers that were very good at what they did, walking around with tax collectors, and the tax collector could be your Jewish brother, and he would say, listen, you need 15% of your salary to the, to the Roman government. That's what they want. You got to give it to them. Okay, that's one thing. But I need another 15% because I'm, I'm building a new lakefront uh, gondola down there, and it's, it's looking really nice, and I need, and I need, and I need, and I want, and I want. And they would charge whatever they wanted. Tax collectors were hated. But it's interesting. Tax collectors were obviously very wealthy. So it makes sense if you have leprosy that you would want to be around Jesus because he could heal you. It makes sense if you were poor, maybe he could help you. If you were blind, maybe he could heal you. But why would the tax collectors want to hang out with this Jewish rabbi who seems to make everybody mad? What was it about Jesus that drove the tax collectors to his feet? Why did people like that come to Jesus why did people that were nothing like him like him? And why in the world did he like them back? That's the question for this morning. Here's another question. This one might hurt or smart a little bit. We're, we're an extension of Christ. Christ Jesus is our head, and we are the church. We are the body of Christ. So we are, by extension, his hands and his feet. Why are these people not attracted to the church in droves, in mass? What is the difference between the way Jesus worked and the way the church works today? And there's a disconnect. There's not the same level of attraction. We get to look at what Jesus thought and how Jesus felt and as the church, we almost have an obligation to say, well, I want what he wants. I'm an extension of him. I, I want what he wants. This morning after my message, we get to take communion together. And that's me raising my hand saying, I want what Jesus wants. In fact, I want so much what Jesus wants, I'm going to symbolically take his body as if it were mine. That's what it's about. So what was so special 
about the way Jesus lived that drove the tax collectors and the sinners and everyone else to Jesus' feet. We get to take a look. We're going to spend time this morning in Luke 15, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to put the words up there. Dwayne is going to put the words up there as we go along. So we're going to start off with the first verse here. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. And we just stop right there for a minute. Tax collectors and sinners listening to Jesus. It wasn't like they just wanted to be close to him in case they healed them. It wasn't like they just had to be around him because maybe they got a kick out of the crowds that were around him. They wanted to hear what he said. So they gathered and they were listening. They were ready to hear what he said. It just says sinners here. It says tax collectors and sinners. So tax collectors, the really wealthy and really hated group. And then you have these sinners, the sinner. This is the person that doesn't follow the law. This is the person whose life is a, is a living train wreck that you can't look away from. This is the person that uh, sells themselves into slavery for a profit. This is the murderer, the thief. This is the person that has no concept of a religious structure or how they should live in view of God. This is the sinner that is the, the, outra, the, 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 the one that is cast out. The sinner, by definition, would not be allowed into the temple. Tax collector, <laughs> no way. They couldn't even get near the temple. So by structure, these people could not worship God. They were forbidden to worship God the way Israel said, worship God this way. They couldn't do it. They weren't allowed. They weren't even allowed in the parking lot. And here comes this Jewish rabbi, and they flock to him. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, you know, like they do. Verse 2, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, <laughs> good word, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They mutter. You know, it's like, the, it's like that type of, of language you use when you're not quite out of earshot, but you're kind of half acting like you're out of earshot. It's like, I kind of hope he hears this. <laughs> mutter, 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 mutter. Well, Jesus hears it. Jesus hears it, and he understands it, because what the Pharisees are saying is, this rabbi is not clean. He does not live a clean life because every good Jewish rabbi knows that what you touch and what you eat makes you clean or not clean. They had food restrictions. They had certain ways that they could eat. If they, were, if they went into a house of someone who wasn't clean, they would be considered unclean. If they sat down at the table with someone who wasn't clean, they would have a ceremonial process they would have to go through in order to become clean again. These, these people took cleanliness to a whole new level. And they're over there muttering. They're following Jesus, or they can't get enough, but they're muttering. He's dirty. He's dirty and he hangs out with dirty people. Why does he welcome them? And, and, and even more, why would he eat with them? And Jesus hears this. And he says, okay, it's time. It's time to let them in a little bit. It's time to reveal to them what my heart and the Father's heart 
really looks like. Verse 3, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Jesus, this master teacher, he's a craftsman. He knows exactly what to say. He's got prostitutes, murderers, lawbreakers, tax collectors, disciples, greater group that are disciples. He's got the crowd, the average Joe. He's got the teachers, the Pharisees of the law, the zealots for the law. They're all sitting around him. And in one sentence, he can get them all nodding and agreeing together. That is a communicator. I would dream to do that. What could you say to get a murderer and a pastor both to agree with you? What could you say to get a prostitute and someone who steals money from their family to agree? Well, he uses an analogy. He uses an analogy everybody understood. If they hadn't experienced shepherding, they knew somebody that had. He said, you know, you know, the, you know the drill, guys. When you've got, you got a flock of about 100 sheep and one goes running off, everybody goes, oh, those sheep, man, woo! <laughs> Not a lot going on up there, you know? Everybody's like, yeah, yeah, sheep. <laughs> got to go get him, right? Got to go get him. It's a little bit different of a culture switch for us because we go, well, you got 99. Who cares about one, right? You got a, you got a flock of 100 sheep and one goes running? Why exert the energy? You got 99. But that's because sheep to us are animals, and animals probably aren't worth that much. To them, this is like an investment. This is like an investment that you could work this sheep and you could produce a profit. And if you did it well, you could produce a large profit. It's actually kind of like a credit card. You got credit cards and you got certain credit limits on those cards. And it would kind of like be like Jesus said, you know guys, you got five or six credit cards, maybe two or three credit cards in your wallet. And, and each one's got about a $10,000 limit, and one of them goes missing. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You got to go get that credit card before somebody runs up that limit, right? You've lost that credit card somewhere, and somebody's going to be getting a gas for every 30 minutes. They're going to run $100 of gas on the credit card, right? Or they're going to hit Amazon. Oh, my gosh. What kind of bill are you going to get if you don't get a hold of that credit card? It works in reverse. That sheep, if it damages, if it falls and breaks its leg, it's worth like a tenth of what it would be worth whole. If it gets scarred, if it gets bruised, if it gets, uh, something gets wrong with it, if it gets eaten, that investment is gone. Everybody in the room got this immediately. Oh, man. If you want that sheep to, to pay for your family's food next year, you better go take care of it. So you go find that credit card. You find it, right? Of course, where do you leave the rest of the credit cards? Of course, they're in your wallet. You're not going to... You're not going to go, oh, man, I lost a credit card. Let me go look at the rest of my credit cards. Isn't that nice? No. You forget about those credit cards for a minute. You go get the one that's lost. This is what's going on in his analogy. And, and we get a little confused, or at least I do, when I say, oh, he, he left the flock in the open country. Sheep? I mean, I don't know much about sheep, but I know they're not smart. How, how can that be healthy, right? It kind of seems like he's sacrificing the 99 for the one. No, he's not doing that. Open country to them meant safety. It meant like, oh yeah, they're going to be happy, they're going to be calm, there's no running water, there's no deep water, there's no forest, there's no predators, they're going to be fine. you got the other shepherd with them or whoever, they are fine where they are, and I'm not focused on them, I need to go get the one who's in danger. That's what it means. 
everybody in the room is, is on it. Okay, we got this analogy. We got it. Then he says this. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. And their kind of nods go, okay, I guess. I mean, call all your neighbors? Like, I don't... At this point, a lot of scholars think Jesus is using a little bit of hyperbole here. He's exaggerating this to make his point. Not sure if you found a lost sheep that you would gather everybody together normally and have a party. But Jesus is going, it's a really good thing when you find that sheep, right? And, he, and everybody goes, yeah, yeah. Well, what it would be like if you threw a party for that sheep? Oh, okay. Is there a point here, Jesus? And I can imagine Jesus presenting this, right? And he's got a twinkle in his eye, and he pauses right there. And everybody's like, yeah, okay, okay. And he goes, now, listen to what he says. Verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And everybody goes, like jaws hit the floor. The guy that just committed murder last week is going, oh, yeah. You mean to tell me that, that you're going to look for me? I'm important? I, are you telling me I have value? And the Pharisee is going, what? I have worked my tail off since I was 12 years old. I have not broken a single commandment. I have not broken a single law. I have worked and worked. I have memorized the Torah. Do you know how long the Torah is? I memorized it. And you're telling me he's valuable? What about me? The murderer goes, that's not fair. And the Pharisee says, that's not fair. Suddenly, everyone in the room is in agreement that what Jesus said is not fair. Not fair at all. We don't know how long the pause was to the next story, but I can imagine it was long. He wanted that to, to marinate with them for a little bit. To be honest with you, when I hear this, and I go, wow, yes, Jesus, looking for that lost sheep, isn't that a beautiful picture? There is this thing deep in my heart that goes, yeah, but I go to church every Sunday. Yeah, but, but I really try hard not to gossip on Mondays and Tuesdays, right? You catch that? Yeah. I, I work really hard at not yelling at my wife or my kids. I only yell at my dog. I work really, really hard. And, and, and Jesus is saying this person who apparently has not cared at all about following God is, is valuable enough to celebrate when he finds one? I don't know. In my heart, I kind of struggle a little with that. And I think if I was sitting there in the crowd, full confession, I might probably stand a little closer to the Pharisees than the prostitutes and the murderers and the tax collectors. Because it just doesn't seem fair. What about all my hard work? What about all the times that I've worked so hard, that I'm up late writing sermons, or, I, or I'm visiting people, or I'm praying for me, I'm doing all the right things? Are you sure that doesn't get me a little bit more value? You think of the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross literally in a moment confesses faith in Jesus, and Jesus rolls his bloody head over to him and says, today... You'll be with me in paradise. Doesn't seem fair. 
That guy's lived his whole life the way he's wanted to live it. Jesus isn't talking necessarily about fairness. Jesus is talking about value. And here's the thing. Jesus is not valuing the tax collector, the murderer, the Pharisee, the disciple, based on what they have done. And this is why everybody takes a minute, and I think there was a long pause before he told the next parable. They take a minute and they start thinking about all the things that they have done. And the Pharisees, no doubt, are thinking about all the things that they've done that are so good. And and the murderers and the sinners are, are thinking about all the things they have done that's so bad. And Jesus brings it all together. And he says, yeah, but that's not your value. We can talk about sin. We can talk about what it means to do that sort of thing and what it does to your heart and your soul and everything. We can talk about thinking that you're better than everybody and what that does to you. But that is not your value. Your value is something different. Your value is something that I see through all of this junk, all of this garbage, all of this dissonance, and I can see your value. If you want to know why these people were drawn to this rabbi who seemed to make everybody mad all the time, it's because somehow he cut through it. He cut through the noise and he could communicate what they were worth. He did it to the thief on the cross. He did it to the Pharisees. He did it to the woman who washed his feet with her tears. He did it to his disciples. He did it to everyone. This is what Jesus did. He communicated value. In the Galatians uh, discussion this morning, we were talking about identity and value. We're talking about how we we can't put a a mark of value on on knowledge or experience or works. Even when you're trying to work for Jesus and serve him, that's still not part of your value. Your value is set. You see, Jesus is like a master craftsman, and he formed you. He built you, and, and we said this morning, he doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't. So he can look at a prostitute and say, I didn't mess up. You're exactly the way I want you to be. I love you, and I've placed value on you, and that's what it is. And he can look at the Pharisee who has worked so hard their entire life, and he could say, great, but it still has nothing to do with your value. The truth is Jesus loves the Pharisee, the tax collector, and the murderer as much as he ever will, no matter what their life looks like. That is the beauty of God's love. That's where it is. Ah, That's good. That's good. I want to sit and think about how much God loves me. That's what worship is about. We worship God because he loves us. And, and, and I want to sit and think about the, the, the love that God has placed on me or the value that he's placed on me based on my mistakes. That makes me feel good. I've screwed up so much. I'm going to screw up so much. And still, God's value is the same on me. He is infatuated with me. He loves me. He can't wait to talk to me. I want to think about that. But we can't think about that forever because we are the church. We are an extension of this love. We are his hands and feet. 
So the same question comes back up. Why aren't people drawn to the church the way they were drawn to Jesus? And this series is not about what we've done wrong. We could all point that out pretty easily, right? If we're honest. This series is not about just trying a little harder, like bootstrap gospel. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you'll be fine. It's not about that. But it is about responding to the value that has been placed on us and the value that has been placed on those around us. It's one of my favorite authors, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, says this. He's a, um, a theologian, Christian uh, evangelist and martyr who died at the hands of the Nazis. He says this, the church is only the church when it exists for the outsider. The church is only the church when it exists for the lost. The church is only the church when it exists for the tax collectors and the sinners and those who don't know their value. That's powerful. And that doesn't make me feel bad. That makes me feel excited. You see, God gave us this thing, this gospel. And, and we know, and, and maybe you struggle with it day to day like I do, but right here, right now, we all know that God has valued us and it has nothing to do with the way we lived and nothing to do with the way we will live. He has put a value on our head that is more precious than his own blood. That is the value that we hold. We know that. If you need a reminder, call me. I can tell you. I need a reminder. I might call you. But we know that. And as the church, the question is now, what do we do with it? What's the next step? We hold this precious gift. And then our society, we're tracking loneliness, and, and the loneliness factor is going up at a remarkable rate. There's actually a connection with social media and loneliness. Can you imagine that? We design social media to connect and to have better relationships and all this stuff, and they're seeing the opposite effect. The more time we spend on social media, the more lonely we are. We're kind of eating ourselves from the inside out. We hold this thing that's the answer to that. And Jesus gave it and could communicate it, and people flocked to him. They could not get enough. I can just imagine the tax collectors and the, the murderers sitting in the front row arguing over who saved the seat, right? Don't argue with someone like that a really rich person or a person that would result to violence. But they're fighting over who gets to see Jesus first. The church is only the church when it exists for the outsider. This is the reality this morning. Jesus' love can flow through you to the lost. It can and that's what we want. That's the hope. That's the dream. I want this love that I have held in my heart. I want it to come out to those around me. Honestly, whether they know Jesus or they don't know Jesus, everybody needs to know how valuable they are. And I want that love to come through me to those people. And, and I don't have tax collectors and, and, and prostitutes and, and Pharisees flocking to me. So somehow there's a translation miss. Somehow that love, that value's not getting communicated. 
So Jesus' love can flow through you to the lost. The question is, is, will you be the messenger he's called you to be? And I don't ask that lightly. That is a scary question. We are talking about your life. We are talking about the way people perceive you. We are talking about the way your boss looks at you, the way your spouse looks at you, the way your neighbor looks at you, and what they think about you. And when you stand up and say, I'm going to be a messenger for Jesus because I have something of his that you need, you're taking your own life in your hands. And Jesus promises there's people that are going to judge you really harshly based on that. People are going to judge you based on your desire to show them what their value is. They will. It'll hurt. There's a church, first century, that struggled with the same thing. They have it. They have the gift. They have the gospel in their hands, and they are so thankful. They are overwhelmed. The Spirit has fallen, and, and, and amazing, mighty things are happening. But their question is, is how do we reach the lost? What do we do? Do we spend money on it? Do we live a certain place? To ha- how do we act? What do we say? If this is all true and those people out there do not know what they're worth, how do we get to them? How do we do it? How do we introduce them to Jesus? It's one of my favorite stories. First church. Jesus has ascended to heaven and the disciples are in the the room, locked down, closed, they're afraid of the outside and they're praying and the spirit falls in a mighty way. And they said it looks like tongues of fire on their heads and and they start speaking in tongues and and all of a sudden the fear is just gone and they spill out into the streets and people are like, what is happening? I can hear my own language from what these these Galileans are talking about. This is amazing. And Peter, the deserter, you know Peter, the deserter, the guy who deserted Jesus publicly, he stands up and he preaches a message that four to 5,000 people get saved from. Amazing. And this church like explodes into existence and there's power and it's amazing and they're, they're praying and they're worshiping and they're breaking bread together and it's wonderful. One day John and Peter are walking in the temple and a, and a, and a, a, a beggar asks them for money. I'm pretty sure it's Peter says, I don't have any money, but what I have, I'll give you. In the name of Jesus, be healed. Poof, the guy's healed. And they're like, whoa, it happened. Oh my gosh, this guy's healed. And the guy's jumping for joy and running around in the temple and telling everybody. And everybody's, wow, that's, that's that beggar that's been there for 15 years. That's amazing. And so then, every, quiet down, everybody, quiet down. I got something to say. I got, Jesus Christ, the one you crucified, healed this man. <gasps> And the leaders come unglued and they throw them in jail and they're questioning them and they're saying, you can't preach Jesus, man. You can, you can preach the church, but you can't preach Jesus. Peter and John are like, I'm sorry, God told us to. We can't say no. And they go, yeah, but you got to stop. And they go, well, we can't say no. And they go, well, well, you can't do it again. And they go, well, we're going to. And it's like, ah, we can't really. That's a stalemate. So finally the Sanhedrin go, well, you can go, but you better not preach Jesus again. And they go, Thank you very much. We're going to preach Jesus. Like, do, do your worst, you know? And so this is the part that gets really interesting. Peter and John go back to uh, the church, and the church has been praying like night and day, like worried what's going to happen. And they come back and they go, this is what happened. This is what they told us. This is what we told them and all this stuff. 
And the church does this. They say, we need to pray. Oh, we need to pray. We need to pray about this right now. And I've got in a list in my head of all the things that I would pray for. Man, there's lost people out there, Lord. How do we save them? There's, there's these, the, the enemy is coming against us. How do we protect ourselves? We're scared. We don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to be arrested. We don't want to die. Like, God, you've got to save us. This is what they prayed. Acts 4, verse 29. They said, now, Lord, they've been praying. Consider their threats. These are the leaders of the church. Consider their threats and enable your servants not to be harmed. No, I didn't say that. Enable your servants to not be thrown in jail. No, I didn't say that. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. That's what they wanted. Out of everything they could have asked for, they asked for boldness. That's incredible. Verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You notice they didn't say amen. This is the amen, 31. After they prayed, the place they were meeting in was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Everything they could have prayed for. They prayed for boldness. They're a church just like us, faced with a challenge. What do we do? We have, we have the gospel. What do we do with it, Lord? There's people out there that are hurting. They need it. What do we do? And the first church says, um, Lord, we want boldness. Give us boldness because we already have the words of eternal life. Just give us boldness. And God says, Amen. God says, amen, and he fills them with the Spirit, and boldness explodes out of the church, and miracles and signs and all these things were done. So this morning, I'm going to pray for boldness. <laughs> That's the answer, boldness. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, God, I confess to you my fear. I confess to you that I'm concerned about what people will think when I share the words of eternal life. I confess and I'm embarrassed that I'm afraid of what my neighbors might think if they know how much I love you. And God, I don't need words. I don't need knowledge. I already have it. I don't need experience. You've already given it to me. God, I need boldness. And I don't ask lightly. I don't ask flippantly, Lord, this church needs boldness. And Lord, we are putting in jeopardy our relationships. We're putting in jeopardy our relationship with our boss with our coworkers, with our spouse, with our neighbors, with our friends, even the cool ones. But God, that's what we ask for. 
We ask for boldness. We ask that your spirit would fall on us and that we would be emboldened and that we would speak what we already know. We would speak the words of eternal life. And that's what we ask for, God, and I'm terrified about what might happen. In your holy name, amen.